Can you be saved outside the church? Okay. Can can you be saved outside the church? Go at it. Everybody's. I think everybody's just nodding yes. Okay. That's going to be a lot. Why, why do you say I believe in the church? By the way, in your confession, why do they say that? I believe in the church when they were talking about salvation. Oh, that's strange. But let's go to the next one. How would you lead a person to Christ in Christian conversion? In other words, if you were, uh, if, if you're praying for a friend, what's your method here? What, what are you going to do to help this person uh, come to Christian conversion? What, and it even raises the question: How would you define a person? When, when, at what point in their journey are they actually converted? When is, when can you say, "Oh, this person's converted now"? But hold on to these questions and see how and whether they get modified. That's going to be the task for you as we move through this. So, today we're going to talk about a redemptive historical understanding of salvation. That's what we're always talking about. And we've made the case before uh, that there was never a time in all of redemptive history when there was salvation apart from a covenantal transaction. That was your first uh, lesson. And we trace that out, you know, how the bereave and the covenant and how that works and the relationship of us to covenant and, and that forensicness, that kind of forensic legal document that explains terms like justification and things like that. So today we're going to make the same audacious claim about something else. And yet this is not going to be intuitive to you, perhaps, if especially you've been discipled in the West and in the Western-leaning church. And especially if you are uh, uh, probably in some ways coming out of evangelical context. Um, and it's going to shape the way you think about uh, salvation and when is someone saved. It's going to shape the way you think about our method of doing uh, salvation and, 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 and our method of, being, of, of reaching the world uh, under salvation and conversion. It's going to change the way you think about um, uh, when is someone actually saved. But and most importantly, it's going, to, it's going to change the way you think about even sanctification. So with that kind of wow moment, um, here it is. Uh, did you know that you could do this study for yourself if you really want, but there was never a time in all redemptive history uh, where salvation was not transacted Apart from presence. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. Presence. Okay, not just message, but presence. Divine presence, that is. Um, Albeit, immediately, you could say, of course, there's those situations where God uh, immediately appeared to Moses, like in a, and even then it was mediated. (laughs) It had to be uh, through the cloud or whatever, or the fire. But, uh, but most commonly, of course, mediated. But it was real. Um, through the temple presence of God, the Word then became flesh. Is the point. Sound familiar? As the mediatorial presence of God in the midst of us. Um, so much so, and I won't go through it here, but, but we even talked about angels a while back, I think. Uh, you covered that in your sermon, I believe it was. And maybe it was just good, I can't remember, but... But this idea of, of angels or messengers, and oftentimes there's a lot of debate. You know, were they? Were, what were they? Uh, some would say they were theophanies or Christophanies. 
appearances of God in some kind of manifestation. Some would see them as angels, other beings, which I, it's kind of, it could be at both hands, my point. But there's always been this, this, this mediatorial presence of God, and I'm going to show you that in a minute. To kind of get you into the door of it, just a general summary of the Old Testament, and we're going to do a New Testament as well. You could say that salvation was accomplished with such words as dwelling place. I mean, you see those words all over the place. Tabernacle, whereby God manifested His saving presence to His people. Uh, there's a bunch of scriptures there. By the way, y'all do know that these, these PowerPoints are put online um, after each Sunday. They should be up there pretty quickly. I hope they're up there Monday maybe even, but who knows. As well as we have an audio, thanks to Gary, that we're putting up there. So go in there. Go to the area where there's classes. Go to this class, and, and you'll find it. You can go through and get these scriptures. So you don't have to take notes. Isn't that great? And go back and look at these passages and just see for yourself if you want to do it. Um, the description of God in the midst of us, Psalms 49, was the single most coveted reality. It really was. You'll see it everywhere. As excommunication, out from God's presence, that is, was the most feared curse. Um, here's an example. There is a river whose stream make glad the city of God. The holy habitation. Habitation? Really? I mean, do we just flip through that word real quick? That word is a huge word in the Old Testament, and many would call it akin to kind of koinonia in the New. In the way in which we are, God is habitating with us in the sacraments. In, for instance, 1 Corinthians 10. And, and the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. See what happens when he's in the midst? There's a big restfulness that comes over us. He's here. He's present. There's power. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I mean, you see the sense of that if you've read through the Old Testament at all. Now, I apologize for the small words. I tried to get a lot in here, and I didn't want to go too far. But just think about this. You don't have to understand everything that I'm going to just summarize real quickly, but this is really meant to be a survey class, right? So we're not going to get into all the written details. But just think about Eden. And it would it would be pretty difficult to miss, especially if you just slow down and, and make some observations in light of language that will be used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Again, it kind of presupposes you're pretty familiar. But um, just this repeated use of the word dome to describe the heavens. In the Hebrew, that is the exact same word that is used to describe the, the ceiling of a sanctuary. You see it all over the place in the temple. And that gives you a clue that what, why that word? Not just sky, but dome. Um, and, and this idea, and, and you can look at Psalms 150 and, and see how that relates to the temple. Isaiah described God as a great architect artist who created the world as a place for his habitation. He's referencing Eden as a place of habitation. After the effortless fiat uh, description of God's work and creation, Sabbath rest is, uh, is, of course, not a description of God resting. He's tired. That's not what's happening there, of course. It fits the image of Isaiah 66.1, where after identifying heaven and earth as God's throne room, the same word Shabbat for rest in, is used, it's used in Genesis 2, is repeated in synonymous form with God's presence in worship. Likewise, in Psalms 132, God's resting place is described as God's dwelling place and the place where he, we are to worship Him at this footstool in the temple. So you're beginning to see that Eden is, is, is a temple. 
um, the cherubim with the flaming swords in Genesis 3, charged with guarding the entrance back into the Edenic presence of God. Guess where that's going to show up? In the temple, on the curtains that separated you from the Holy of Holies. Right there. It's in this holy sanctum of the temple. Um, and these images that you'd see there. The curse that was enacted against fallen humanity is stated in terms of being excommunicated from before the face of God, as was also used concerning the tabernacle, uh, uh, the the, uh, the temple. Um, what's interesting there too? Do I get this? Yeah, it's facing. And and where is it that the cherubim are placed? On the east side of Eden. No, you think to yourself, why would that little serendipitous observation be made? Why was it carefully put into the record that they were on the east side? Well, if you look up the word east in the Old Testament, you're going to find that word everywhere. And it's always related somehow, or most of the time it is, but always related to face, it's, it's the entrance of the temple. It's, 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 it's the way in which you then would, would come in and out of the temple, and it, rec- it, was, and it becomes symbolic of the very invitation door of the world to God. And you'll see from the east, and all this language about the east, um, this is where I wish I had more time, but I think we're going to get into it on another trajectory. But when we get to the issue of the image of God, humanity made the image of God, and, and this idea of the Spirit of God coming upon uh, humanity. Um, we often think of this, unfortunately, in post-enlightenment ways. And what do we do? We import questions about, what does it mean to be the image of God? And we throw in there our enlightenment rationalism questions. Oh, it's to be rational. It's that intellectual capacity, or it's, a, or it's, so, it's consciousness, and off you go. You're getting into ontology questions, if you know that word, the nature of man. That is so modernistic. You do know that, right? To ask, what's the nature of man ontologically, philosophically, blah, 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 blah. No, this is a description of vocation. This is a description of, of, of the language that would have been used, and, and, and I've said this before, but this humanity would have um, uh, the image of an ethic, this, this, this uh, cloak that was placed on, or, or, or you know, coat, whatever you want to call it, I'm not using the right word, but, but that, that a priest would have, wherein in the inside of it was a very earth tone, and then on the outside was a very glorious and, and, and glorified tone, the, the representation of the priestly role of imaging God into the world, of, of representing or mediating God to the world. Is the way this this conveyed this in, and therefore and then I go on I don't do it here but if you study the language be fruitful and multiply that language is attributed directly to the job description of a priest in the temple and has language that's not just agrarian believe me it's not just go make babies it's really the great commission it's really what is bringing all of the world under the rule of God subdue and make all and and, and bring the kingdom it's it's a it's a commission. To expand the kingdom of God from out from out of Eden into the whole world, which is of course a temple uh, mandate for all the nations to come and, and be gathered into the presence of God. So that's Eden, and then you go to Bethel. Never a time, right? Here we have Bethel, the house of God. I mean, you can't be a Jew and say the house of God and know immediately what you're talking about. And you're not talking about my my house. You're talking about that holy temple. The temple that Jesus Christ had great fervor for, right? Um, you know, Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. Now I want you to think about the word place. Don't go too fast. You mean there's a place where God is? 
I mean, time, space, place, where God is. See how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, even the gate of heaven. God identifies him with the temple presence at Bethel. I am the God of Bethel. That's pretty amazing that God would lower himself to be of a place. Wouldn't it? But of course, what makes Bethel Bethel is it's the place of temple. Um, God directed his people to Bethel for the purpose of finding salvation by means of covenant execution and renewal, according to Genesis 35, uh, chapter, chapter 35, verse 1, etc. And then moving on quickly, um, we go to Exodus. One uh, commentator, uh, Durham, says this, uh, John Durham, that if you want to understand the theology of Exodus, it's reduced to this. The centerpiece of its theological unity is the theology of Yahweh's presence with and in the midst of the people of Israel. See, we think of Exodus. Now, I don't have time here to tell you that, but in fact, I think I mentioned it, but the whole story of Exodus is actually told as a new creation event, like the new formation of Eden. The same hovering spirit over the cosmos is the spirit hovering over the waters of the Red Sea. Um, bringing the order back into the world and the authority of God acting there. It's amazing how Exodus is a new creation event. And guess what? New creation, new Eden, well, we'll see. It just keeps coming up. And it's always associated with God's habitation. Exodus 30.12, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. Notice, I will be with you, that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God in this mountain. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, he said. There's that Shabbat. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, uh, says Moses. You see what he's saying? He had this problem. It was a covenant and and temple uh, conflict here. On the temple side, they were condemned as a stiff-necked people, and God would surely destroy them according to the terms of the covenant. But to go be sent out and do salvation, Moses knew that without God's presence, it was essential, that is. Oh, did I say that? I did not say that. No, I did not say that, did I? That God's presence is an essential element of salvation? And so Moses said, I ain't going nowhere unless you can go with me. And so God says, I'll go with you. And then that sends him back to the covenant. says, uh-oh, but you said you're, we're a stiff-necked people and you're going to destroy us if you go with us. And that's when he said that great phrase that Paul quotes later in Romans when he says, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Remember that? What is he saying? You know, and then, of course, we're harking back to Abrahamic covenant. We talked about that before. And this oath that God took to satisfy the covenant on behalf of Israel, the remnant Israel, that is, who put their faith in that covenant. So here you have this transaction going on, and Moses said, I've got to have it all. I've got to have both ends. I've got to have justification before I'm willing to go with you, Lord, and I've got to have your presence before I can go with you, Lord. Remember that transaction? That is a covenant temple transaction. We've got to have them both. So that's what's going on there. Um, there's some other things here. Uh, the glory spirit, of course, what goes with God. So what, how, does, how do we know that God made good his promise to be present? That is in space, in time. There is this glory spirit, the Shekinah glory, the cloud that never left him. And where did that cloud reside eventually? Anybody want to guess? The tabernacle. Later, the temple. When people were described as being excommunicated from God, like in Ezekiel, how did the prophets talk about that? 
Ezekiel describes the great chariot of the Holy Spirit leaving the temple. That is about, I mean, that would have absolutely, the people, there could not have been a more horrifying um, a prophecy than the Spirit of God leaving what was used to have been the house of God and leaving them naked and vulnerable. No salvation. So this issue goes on. Um, when we turn to the New Covenant, now some people say, oh, well, you know, New Covenant, we all know that we don't worship like that anymore. Right? Wrong. It's true that we're no longer in a typological temple, a temple made with hands, the one that is in one place at one time. That is actually the whole point of Christ's narrative in John, as we'll see in a minute, that the greater things is that there will be a temple everywhere in proximity to everybody because of this thing that we're going to call the temple church. But here we go again. When you get to the scripture in the New Testament, what do you see? You don't hear Paul saying, no more temple. No. He dares to assert the community is the place where God dwells. Do you not know? He asked that you, plural, don't individualize this, are God's temple and that God's spirit, now that to a Jew... I mean, you read that, you think, oh, this person, you know, or, I'm not you, you, I'm talking about the world that's lost sight of it. They're thinking of this little personal wise Holy Spirit. No, the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwells in you. That is an image of the Shekinah glory of God that left the temple in Ezekiel coming home. Right back to him. He's, he's fluttering back down. I mean, I, 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 I suspect when, when, when Jewish Christians heard this, they started crying. This could not have been better news. The force of Paul's audacious metaphor is that the apostolically founded community um, takes the place of the Jerusalem temple as the place where the glory of God resides. Um, you know, a summary of the gospel. Now we're in the New Testament summary, right? The gospel, according to Paul, is not a transaction from temple presence to no temple presence. Rather, Christ is introduced as God tabernacled among us, John. Even as Christ's ascension ministry is defined by Christ, filling all in all. That's the language of the Spirit filling the temple. Built, and then he goes on to tell you that's what he meant in chapter 2. Built upon the apostolic foundation with Christ as a cornerstone. Foundation of what? He says it. The dwelling place, chapter 2. The tabernacle, chapter 2, or temple. The house of God. He uses every word you could use for the temple within three verses. To tell you, I'm back. God's back. He's, and now he's everywhere and anywhere the apostolic foundation with Christ the cornerstone is to be found. It's amazing. The dwelling place language is all over the place. You see it everywhere. The church of the living God. Those weren't just abstract concepts for them. They, he's alive now, here and now, in this place. I mean, I, mean, I want to stop and be a you know pastor for a minute here, but we don't have time, doggone it. But just think about how, if you believe that, how that would shape your idea of providence. That God really is in this place, in New Haven. And all things whatsoever happen with His power and will. How that would shape things. To know He's not an abstract God up there, like the deist thought, but not down here. The deism, if you understand deism, is basically uh, uh, a theism without temple. On earth, that is. Um, John's gospel is amazing. Um, the whole thing, you know, is centered around temple. 
Most believe that he was he was preaching he was bringing the gospel to Sadducee Christians. Uh, Pharisees really focused on covenant. Sadducees really focused on temple. And with the demise of the temple in AD seventy, um, uh, they were like, "What what what do we do now? What it's gone." And he's trying to make a case that no, the temple isn't gone. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does he begin? Of course. But here's the Great Commission. Just think about this. The Great Commission, in John terms, um, is as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And it begs the question, how did the Father send him according to the thesis of John? Go back to John 1. And he says, the Word, the covenant Word, became flesh and templed among us. It's the, it's the word that enters into time and place that is now with us. And of course, that was Jesus Christ's incarnation. But you're wondering, and of course, all the I am statements in John are in temple locations. Did you know that? Fulfilling the temple. Um, but you move on, and uh, he gives you that thing about in three days the temple will be destroyed and then it will be raised up again. Of course, right there in John, it tells you the commentary. And later we figured out that was talking about the resurrection. But then it begs the question, now he's in ascension, right? Half of John is not talking about his incarnation. In fact, there's an amazing uh, uh, two-part uh, outline in John where, where they are wanting him to, be, uh, to ascend to the holy mount of God. And that happens earlier in, I think, chapter 6 or 7, I can't remember. And he says, no, I will not ascend. It's like a big event. It's not, my time's not ready. I.e., I have not fulfilled my incarnational ministry yet. Later, of course, Mary will come to him and say, oh, you're back, and hug him for his now incarnational presence after the resurrection. And he rebukes her and says, no, I'm not. Or I am, I guess, a little bit, but not for sure. We're good. Um, don't cling to me anymore. Don't hold on to the incarnational ministry anymore. I am ascending. Go tell the disciples, I am ascending. And if you understood what had happened three chapters before that and all the way to it, was a whole discourse on the Holy Spirit and how it was. And this is a real crucial passage because way back there, well, let's go down to, uh, uh, let's see, down to that promise. Uh, you see that? Um, the promise of the temple in my Father's house are many rooms. If you were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself in that place. That I am you, maybe also. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And you're thinking, well, what's he talking about? If you read it outside of John 14 and 15 16, you're going to think he's talking about heaven and another place. But if you look carefully, what he's talking about, he says this, he explains, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you in a little while. The world will no longer see me, as in I'm ascending, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you and me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will uh, come to him and make our home with him. And we then see him next talking about the advocate. I didn't have room here. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. How God, he's going to come and there are things to be revealed that have not yet been real that will be revealed. Of course, now I'm thinking he's talking about the apostolic foundation. And that being in the church. 
And so, real quickly, and uh, again, we only have about seven minutes, we're just flying here. Um, when you think about the ascension, Paul really gets at this in Ephesians. And he's very balanced. You know, if you remember in chapter 1, he's going to talk about Christ who is head over all things unto the church. He's talking about his covenant headship. And then he's going to start talking about but, but how it is that, that, that Christ fills all in all. That's always temple language, this filling language. Fills all in all, wherein this body of Christ is added to this covenant word, where Christ fills all in all. Interesting. If you look at chapter 1, what happened before that was part 1 was all the benefits of covenant. And that's in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He chose us in Him. He predestined us in Him. And then we have redemption through His blood. That is the satisfaction of the curse of the covenant. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, in other words, assurance of salvation. All of that comes from a covenantal transaction, legal in nature, received by grace through faith alone. There's somebody trying to get in if somebody could let them in for food. Um, and um, all of that is covenant language. And then right after that, he says, for this reason, since you've already got all this, you're already Christians, evidently, or at least covenantal Christians, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that your eyes and hearts will be enlightened, that you would know what is the measurable greatness and power. And off he goes about this, and he ends with this, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then, of course, if you go to chapter 2, it's very, very, very carefully done here by Paul. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he, he starts this two-part, you once were, but now. And he's, he, what he's doing is he's explaining the implications of chapter 1. Covenant, temple. Now, let me tell you what that means. Covenant, you once were dead in your trespasses. That's a word for sin that relates to covenant breaking. But now you've been made alive together with Him. How? By grace, through faith alone, not of yourself, it's free gift of God that no one can boast. Down to chapter 10. But now. Then He does it again. You once were alien. What kind of word is that? You once were strangers. You once were outside, excommunicated language. Not legal language presence language. And then what does he do? He starts talking about that and he ends with that great statement about how the church is the presence of God. How does one get saved? How did you answer that question? My guess is if you're a good Western evangelical Christian, you answered it covenantally. Chapter 1, I mean chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. But did you answer it according to chapter 2 verses 11 through 23? We probably didn't. How would Paul, uh, how would Peter have answered it in Acts chapter 2? What must we do to be saved? What do you say? Covenant, repent. That is, repentance and faith. It's always code word. Confess your sins, which is to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So repent. Get straight with God covenantally and be baptized? I don't know. We all know baptism doesn't save you. Right? Titus, this baptism now saves you? Oh, well, he was taking figure of of course. There we go. Just throwing in our rationalisms all we can to fit our own ability to think. Well, let's look at the Scripture more carefully. 
So here we have it. Of course, I want to make the case that all of redemptive history, so we end with Revelation with what again? The house of God is among the people. That's how we end this whole story. It's a temple ending. I mean, just step back. Isn't that really cool? Just for nothing else. I bet you now, because we do this, you know, a lot, I bet you you're going to never read the Bible again after this, this lesson. Just I mark my words. If you got the aha moment here, wow, there really is a presence concept to our salvation. You're going to start finding it everywhere. Everywhere. You're just not going to believe it. You're going to go, why didn't I ever see that before? Why didn't I ever see that before? There it is. I can't believe this. It's everywhere. This binding them loose on earth, what is bound and loosed in heaven. It's everywhere. And so uh, what I want to do by the, in the last five minutes, if I can try to do it, um, I'll give you some great quotes here. I wish I had time to give them from Thomas Torrance, uh, from Augustine, from John Calvin. But look at Calvin. Beyond the pale of the church, there is no forgiveness of sins. No salvation can be hoped for. John Calvin said that? You know, what is this church according to Torrance? It is the sphere where through the presence of the Spirit, the salvation events of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension are operative here and now in history, in time, space. That's what the church is. It's the temple of God. On it goes. Try to illustrate this a little bit. What difference would this make? How would this shape the way you think about Christianity and your relationship with God? Well, what's the nature of redemption? If it's a covenant contract, it's a paradigm. You know what a paradigm is? It's like a legal paradigm or template that, with rules and laws, and, and, and uh, it frames it in that kind of a way. It's a legal document. It's legal in nature. It's what makes grace objective, thanks be to God. If it weren't for the covenant, you would examine yourself and your subjective experience of God's presence. Sound familiar to some of the new neo-Noxic kind of evangelicalisms coming around where we're always evaluating my relationship with God based on my feelings with God and my experience with God and we start having need to have one after another and all of a sudden Christianity becomes an experiential event and we look for a church that will give us that experience. Sound familiar? You see, that, that would be a temple leaning spirituality gone amok without the covenant. Where there is no place for that objectifying grace that says, no, it doesn't have to do with your feelings and your emotions and your experiences. It's a legal transaction that, quote, cold, if I will, and I mean that in a beautiful way, that unemotive, a transaction made by grace through faith, the legal conditions were met in Jesus Christ and you can be assured of your salvation. You would not have assurance without this covenant. Very important. We're not going to get rid of that, right? But what would it look like if you were to put it in temple terms? Well, now you're talking about presence, which is power. Experiencing and manifesting the power of God by His Holy Spirit presence in your life. It's effectual calling, we call it. Not just universal calling with words. You think about it. We, we, we call forth for people to be saved every, every week at, at church. That's a covenant. We're doing it through a message. We're declaring. That's a covenant me- method. But the temple says we got to discern genuine and saving faith by virtue of your own you know, discerning yourself 
subjectively on that cross and all that comes with that. Um, and so there's an effectual component to it. We know that you can't you be, can't be saved unless you are what born again. Where does that show up? By the way, John's gospel taking the hope. Remember what John said: He who who got baptized, I baptize with water. He will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Fast forward chapter three. We know what that is. That's being born again by Jesus Christ and His Spirit. So you must be born again. We are conversionists. In other words, we're not just federalists. Now, those of you in theology know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't have no clue what I'm talking about, that's just fine. But we don't think it's just a legal relationship with the church that gets me saved. We think there's also a conversion. You must be born again. And this self-examination is an aspect of that. Discerning that. That brokenness. In a manner that I'm enabled by God's grace to embrace Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I just quoted Westminster, just so you know. And that is the idea of temple presence. Empowering me, enlightening me, giving me salvation and wisdom, as Paul prayed for in Ephesians 1. So think about the nature of redemption. We did that. One is objective grace, two is uh, the other subjective grace. The knowledge of God and salvation. If you know the word epistemology, that's the study of how we know what we know. Well, how would you know what we know about God? Well, the covenant would say by proclamation. By, you, would, you would declare it. You would, it's a message. It's words. And we would rationally discern them and agree with them. Okay? Assent to. And that's part of saving faith. Assent. But salvation is more than that. It's a temple. It's an epistemology of participation. Go to your Westminster Confession of Faith. It's all there. How is, what is saving faith? It's assenting to covenant and receiving temple. This epistemology of participation. Now how would you do evangelism if both of these were true? Well, evangelism covenant style is declare, 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 declare. Preach, 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 preach. Sit down and have a evidence of the demands of verdict Bible study or whatever you're talking about. Get them into the worldview of Christianity. Okay? But there's another way you know what you know. And most of us know this intuitively. We know by participating in it. I know love. Yeah, I have some definition of love. There's a covenant aspect to love. We call that agape. But there's also an eros concept to love. Praise God. It's all the heat. So think about your conversion. There's light, as Edward said. True religious affection. It involves light and it involves heat. One without the other is not complete. Light and heat. Paradigm power. Um, so evangelism has to be a participational evangelism. This is where you say, I want to reach somebody for Christ. What are you going to do? You're not going to just give them the four laws or five laws or whatever laws or whatever those rulings were. You're going to say, come to church and do the gospel with us. Come to a community group and do the gospel with us. Participate in it. Experience it. When you date someone, what do you got to do before you know you can marry them? Well, you can't just do it. You can do a lot of it long distance, I guess. You kind of get all the facts about each other straight and hear each other talk with it. And there's a kind of participation, I guess, in that anyway. So, bad illustration. But at the end of the day, you're going to know when you know. You participate in it. How do you buy a car? You drive it around. Some things you know. We have an epistemological radar that can intuit in our spirit when something's right and wrong. Somehow. Make room for that mystical aspect of our life. We are spirits. We're not just bodies. 
Um, conversion then, I've already mentioned that. What was someone to be saved? It's not enough to pray a sinner's prayer. You're not saved yet. I'm just going to say it. You must receive. You must be baptized, which is to come and be grafted into the body of Christ in this mystical communion of presence. Christ with me, me with Christ. You, plural, not me, individual. And that's how we... So how do you get saved? Repent and get baptized. Now, there's a whole sequence of things that are going to happen in that story. Catechism or some kind of a explaining what this means. There's going to be participation in the life of the body of Christ. Blah, blah, blah. But that's what we're talking about. So then finally, love. What is love? Sanctification. You can think of agape love, which is the covenant love, which is why we believe everybody should be married. But there's also eros love. The, the, the spending time together, the heat, the love, the care, the, all the things that's romantic about love. And there's love, and that love is biblical. Even though the word eros isn't used because they've been screwed up by the time you got to the New Testament, so they use other words for it. Real finally, this is the last. So what happens here? What happens in the Lord's Supper? Well, the word for it is koinonia, and as one theologian said, there could be no worse use of the word koinonia than the one that would exclude that there's a participation with Christ, not just a remembering of Christ. So we believe God's present in the Lord's Supper even as he's present in everything about the church. Not just the Lord's Supper. Baptism? We think baptism saves you. Not necessarily. Not necessarily immediately. There's a covenant transaction that has to place, take place. But ordinarily, it's really a transaction of, of, of being born again. Although that can be a transaction that you discern over time. It doesn't have to be a one-time event. Some of you are born again. You never really know when. You just know that one day you knew. That's fine. So don't misrepresent me here. I see we've got to leave. Um, what happens in a sermon? Hint, Romans 10. If you go back and read that, it's more than just a sign, a bunch of words and learning something. I, we believe it's a live event. The Holy Spirit is mystically can, transforming your life through these words, like words made creation. Is the church an element? I'm going to your questions now to answer them. Is the church an essential element of the gospel? Yes. Ordinarily, Yes. Our confession says, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Can God save you apart from the church? Yes. But it's not the way that He has prescribed in Scripture. Without the church, you have no presence. You're not at least totally saved. Um, and then uh, the church, uh, think about it this way. There's another concept here that are pretty cool. Um, is the church a global thing? This one holy Catholic church. Is it global or local? If you're a globalist, you think it's global. And it's, you're right. It's the church that, that all together affirms the apostolic foundation of faith. But if you're a temple, it's always local. The more local, the better. The more heat, the more local, the more heat. You see? So there's, a, there's some real philosophical change. Do you want this church to be a very big, big church? Right in one place, really big? Well, that's a globalist way of church growth. Let's just build the church and build it and build it and build it and get bigger spaces. Now, the temple idea of the church said, no, we want it as close to the vernacular and as close to the local uh, communities as we can possibly get so that all the means of grace are, are, are closer to them and less abstract. 